Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our 2021 Elul Learning Series. Hello, everyone. It is lovely to see you all. Um, I am actually at the American Jewish University currently, and I'm going to have to leave in a few moments um, to be on a panel for the new for the incoming Ziegler students as an alumna, which I'm very excited to do. And uh, and one of my teachers is going to be teaching you all this morning. Uh, Rabbi Dr. Avi Havivi has. I'm sure he's going to tell you a little bit more about how this came to be. But this coming year is a Shemitah year, and he brought together Rabbi Klikfeld and me and a team to be able to talk about what does that mean for Temple Beth Am and how can we make some big changes, not just for this year, but starting this year that will move us well into the future. So I'm going to let him take it over. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to learn with you all this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Shas. Thanks for asking me. I'm not going to say too much about our new green, our renewed green team, because an email will be going out on that to the entire congregation within days, maybe even within hours, I'm not sure. Um, and they'll tell you all about it and what's going on. And we're going to have lots of uh, classes also. So this is kind of the first in the series. Um, if you miss the following subsequent ones in the series, they'll all be archived under the Temple Beth Am, uh, whatever that button is, audio, what do we call it? Not audio files, uh, podcasts, podcasts. Um, and I'm going to try to get Bert, who is our podcast master, to list them all as green team. So if you're interested in green team talks, you can just look under green team and find all of them. Although this will have to be cross-referenced with Elul. It'll be called both Elul and green team. So we're going to talk today. We'll we'll read some text. I don't want Rabbi Shas to share it yet because I want to sort of tee it up about the three biblical passages that talk about the laws of Shemitah. So there are three different biblical passages in the Torah, the Chumash. We'll take a look at them. You may be familiar with them. What we'll see, which is very interesting, is that all three are different from each other, okay? Um, And this is not unique uh, for laws, uh, you know, if you sort of pay attention to the Torah reading cycle, for laws that are mentioned more than one place in the Torah, very often in different places, those laws will be described differently, all right? Um, And from the traditional rabbinic Jewish point of view, the Torah is unitary and is all written by God, and so everything in it must agree internally. And so we have things like, and something something that's fresh in my mind, because we just have been reading them in the Torah reading cycle the last few weeks. So like, it says one place in the Torah, you should give a tithe of all your produce, all our ancestors were farmers, pe- you know, peasant farmers, petty farmers, tithe of all your produce to the Levite. Uh, and then there's another passage, which we just read in Deuteronomy last week, which says tithe of all your produce every year. You should take it with you up to Jerusalem and eat it there. And if you can't take it with you because it's too far, you should sell it for money and take the money to Jerusalem and then buy food and drink in Jerusalem and enjoy it there. But on the third year of the tithe, you don't go to Jerusalem. You leave all that produce stuff out for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the Levite who lives in your community. So we have two different versions of the law of the tithe. Um, so in halachic Judaism, there are two tithes. Your taxes are given to the Levite and 10% that you take to Jerusalem and eat and party with. So the rabbinic way of of harmonizing is saying, oh, these things can't be in contradiction. There are two different tithes. Of course, as we know, the sort of secular, modern secular Bible scholar approach is to say, well, these are different parts of the Torah written by at different times. And so they may have reflected different customs. It doesn't mean in ancient times they gave 20%, they gave 10%, and we simply have two different versions by two different authors of this. So you can ask the same question about Shemitah, because we're going to see we have three different versions. I'm not interested so much in the harmonizing um, or the contradiction. I'm more interested in what we'll see is these three different passages in their three different ways of describing the Shemitah or sabbatical year describe different aspects of the sabbatical year. They use different language. And so what we're going to ask today uh, is um, what different aspect or ideology of the sabbatical year 
is highlighted differentially in each one of these three passages, right? We're, we're not going to say too much. Can we make them agree or do they disagree? But it's more what differential different aspects are highlighted. And we're going to do a second level exercise to help us sort that out. Each one of these passages is embedded in a context. There are laws before and laws after. They're all three in three different law codes within the Chumash. So we're going to look at their setting in a specific law code because what we'll see is they're, they're set like a jewel that's set in a setting. They're set in a setting that then also the context gives them meaning and nuance or helps support the three different meanings or nuances of Shemitah. So what we're going to look at as we're going to look at is three passages in the Chumash and we'll say, um, how do they each talk about the Shemitah or sabbatical year differently? And how is, how are those differences? I'm going to say highlighted or even emphasized, strengthened by the context in which a law is put. When we look at it in the context of what comes before and what comes after, um, how does that shape our view? So that's what we're going to do today. Any questions about what we're going to do today? We're not going to talk about rabbinic law. We're not going to talk about the TBA green team. We're not going to talk about Shemitah and the land of Israel in 5782 and what are they going to do. We're just going to read the Chumash and we're going to try to understand these three different passages and say, like, how are they different and how are they similar and how do you put them together and what ideas um, are underlying those passages and what ideas flow forward to us from these passages, because what we'll ask is, even though we don't live in the land of Israel, and so we're not halakhically obligated, according to traditional halakha, to observe the lands of the laws of Shemitah, what ideas are contained within these laws that could resonate with us, even though halakhically we are not obligated to, you know, as they do in Israel, let's say, you know, leave the fence of your garden open and put a sign up that says, "Any it's Shemitah year, anyone who wants to come pick fruit off our tree may do so because we don't own the tree this year. That's what they, that's what they do in Israel. That's what they'll be doing next year. So even though we're not obligated to do that, so you could say, oh, who cares about Shemitah for us? Not really relevant, even though we should say all of Torah is relevant. Um, but it may be relevant because we're, we're going to look at the ideologies, the ideas, that are Im- embedded um, in these passages and ask, uh, how do they speak to us? Rabbi Schatz, without further ado, could you please screen share the text? Um, I didn't have time it, in the text for today to change all the Yud K Vav K's God's name to just Hashem. So if you print this out, then according to Rabbi Dorf's um, tshuva, you should throw it out in recycling and not in the garbage, please, because it contains God and it's God's names. So who or what is the biblical Shemitah for and what is it supposed to accomplish? The law of Shemitah appears in the Torah three times. In each instance, a different aspect of Shemitah is highlighted. We can gain insight into the different aspects of Shemitah by paying attention to the surrounding context of a particular passage. So that's what we said. That was the intro. So first passage is in the law code in Parshat Mishpatim. In Exodus, here's what we're going to do. Scroll down a bit, Rabbi Schatz. Okay, so first we're going to read the Shemitah year law, and then we're going to back up and look at the context. I, I have bolded the sabbatical year law. Six years you shall sow your land, sow, S-O-W, plant your land, and gather in its yield or produce. The here the the here means but the sometimes means and but it means all sorts of conjunctions the but hashaviit the seventh so what does the seventh refer to here shana which is a um, female word it's one of those irregular Hebrews it's a female word but the plural is shanim okay not shanot but it's female so shaviit is means seventh female, not male. So Shavi'it refers to the seventh, parentheses, year. But on the seventh, Tishmetena unetashta, you shall, Lishmot literally means to let go or release. 
Okay. It's the opposite of grasp. It's actually a physical word, which is used here metaphorically. And the physical word would be as if I were holding something in my hand and then I open my hand and let it fall out. That's what lishmot is. That's what release means. Just like release in English, right? But it's a physical, it's a physical word. And here it's used metaphorically. So, but I want to stick with the word. So on the seventh year, you should release it and abandon it. Lintosh means to abandon, literally. Here our translation, let it rest and lie fallow. That translation of rest is influenced by the context. And I'm not sure it's really a literal, a good literal translation. So on this, on the seventh, you should release it. It refers to the land, which is also female grammatically. That's why it's Tishmetena You should release the land and abandon it or in farm terms, let it lie fallow. Okay. And let the poor people of your kin, your nation, your people, eat. Vietram and the leftover, tochal chayat hasadeh, let the animals of the field eat it, right? So the opposite of, you know, in my garden, it's constant battle between me and the squirrels about the fig tree. Will I get the the figs off when they ripen one by one? Or will the squirrel, you know, take one bite of it and throw it on the ground and it's useless? And I know, I know I could cover my tree with green netting and there's some years when we do that, but not this year. So I got like three or four figs and at this point, the squirrel is winning, okay? So so um, you uh, release the land, abandon it, let it lie fallow, the poor people eat and the extra of it, the animals eat. And you should do the same thing for your um, vineyard, and your olive. In general, in ancient Israel, there are sort of three categories of produce. They're categorized as grain, wine, and olive, which is for used for oil, generally not for eating, but for oil, right? Which was important for, for fuel and for personal um, cleanliness, right? So th- this is basically the agricultural produce, right? So whatever I just said, the law is saying, whatever I just told you about your field, the exact same thing applies to your vineyard and your olives, meaning you release it and abandon it, okay? And in the halakha, I said we weren't going to talk about the halakha, um, but in the halakha, it basically says release it means you don't work the field, you don't plow, you don't, uh, what's this word? The trimming, when you trim plants. Prune. Prune, thank you. You don't plow, you don't prune, you don't seed, you don't, you, you, you don't do any agricultural work, okay? So your fields, your olive trees, your vineyards, you leave it alone. Anyone can eat from it. By the way, that also means you can eat from it. There are all sorts of halachic things about but you can't gather it. So you're only allowed enough to take, let's say for, you know, small amount of time. You can't, um, you can't pick all the, all the whatever oranges from the orange tree and put them in a pile in your barn. You're not allowed to do that. You're allowed to take enough to eat your fill. There are all sorts of halachic things in rabbinic literature about how much, right? But you can't ingather it. You can't plow. You can't work. You can't prune. You can't improve your crop. You can't uh, fertilize. You can't improve your crops, okay? So you let your all your produce stuff, all your growth, uh, which is the source of all wealth in ancient biblical Israel, because it's all based on agriculture. You let it lie fallow and abandoned. Every seventh year, anyone can eat of it. The poor, by the way, implication, why should the poor eat of it? The implication is because the poor don't own land. Okay, so anyone can eat of it. Animals can eat of it. Okay. Now, let's just put this in context. If you could scroll a little back. Thank you. Okay. So you shall not subvert the needs of the needy in their disputes, meaning don't take advantage of poor people in court. You know, rich people can afford a rich lawyer. Poor people can't afford as good a lawyer. It's easy to take advantage of them in court. It's easy for the rich to oppress the poor and get the legal system on their side. 
Don't do that. Keep far from a false charge. Do not bring death on those who are innocent and in the right, for I will not acquit the wrongdoer. Do not take bribes for bribes. Ooh, something happened there. Did something happen in your screen with the formatting? Okay, thank you. Do not take bribes for bribes, blind the clear-sighted and upset the pleas of those who are on the right. So, so far, I basically said, basically said, in your legal system, it's very easy for those who are socially weaker to be taken advantage of. Make sure that your system of justice is just so that those who are socially weaker, the socially disadvantaged, are not taken advantage of. Go on further on. You shall not oppress a stranger, the gare, for you know the feelings of the stranger having yourselves been strangers in the land of Egypt. Why is the gare passage there? Probably because a gare was uh, usually translated as a resident alien. It meant a non-Israelite who lived among the Israelites. And given that the Israelite, ancient Israelite system of land owning was hereditary um, in clans and tribes, clans and families, what that meant was a gare is someone who doesn't own land. In other words, a gare is someone who lives in your midst, who does not participate in the same system of ownership that you do. Um, so that is why the gear is at a disadvantage. So we had poor people in the court system who are at a disadvantage. Okay. We had the gare who lives among you, who doesn't own land, just like you Israelites all own land because you're part of an Israelite clan. So, so don't. It's easy to, by the way, the other thing is um, so there's lots of things of justice in ancient Israel were based on the clan and the family as they still are today in, in middle, many traditional middle, middle Eastern societies. Um, who, who makes sure that I'm not taking advantage of? My clan. The ger, by definition, is cut off from their family because they come from another country. So they don't have a clan to make sure that they get justice. So they don't own land. They don't have a family or clan system to back them up. Okay. So for two different reasons, it's very easy to take advantage of the gear. All right. So that's why we have the gear here. Then we have six years with the, uh, the Lishmot, Shemitah, right? Um, notice, by the way, the year is not called Shemitah here. It is just called Shivit. It's just called on the seventh year. It's not even really called anything. It's not given a noun name. It just says six years plow the field, work your field, and on the seventh, release it and let it and abandon it. Okay. Then if we can scroll down, please for my shots. Then six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor. We call this Shabbat, right? In order that your ox and your ass may rest and that your bondman and the stranger may be refreshed. Could you scroll down? I think that's the end of that passage. Okay, good. All right, so, so back up, back up, back up. Okay, so by the way, um, you keep Shabbat in this passage. Is it Zecher Lama'aseh Bereshit? Is it a commemoration of uh, creation? No. Is it Zecher Litziat Mitzrayim, a commemoration of the exodus from Egypt? No. It only says in Mishpatim's law code in Exodus. Scholars refer to this as the covenant code because it's part of God making the covenant with B'nai Israel that accompanies the giving of the Ten Commandments. Um, all it says is, on you do your labors on the six days. On the seventh, you cease rest from them. Why? So that all of those whose labors you make use of can have a day off. Doesn't say anything, by the way, about what you're supposed to do, right? But there are all these people who are um, under your rubric of work. We could call them employees, right? So we have a gear who's a resident alien who's probably actually employed, right? Rather than a slave. We have Ben Amatcha, your bondman, which could be a nice way of saying slave. And we have your animals. So these are the things that help you run your farm, okay, their labor. And you have to observe Shabbat. What is the meaning of Shabbat? According to this passage is that all the labor or the laborers that are dependent on you under your employee, including your animals, they have a rest, okay? Why? It doesn't say. 
Okay, so it's not Zecher Lamas Ebrashid, it's not Zecher Litziat Mitzrayim, there's no ideology given. So we're not going on yet, Rabbi Shas. So let's just pause and take a look at that, okay? So when we consider the Shemitah in context, maybe you could scroll back up, okay? And I said to you, according to this passage in Shemot, in Exodus, what's the purpose of Shemitah? I'm asking you. Anyone can, anyone can unmute and answer. I won't call on you. It's to give a land a rest. Is it? Yes. Where, where, does it where does it say give the land a rest? It doesn't, but when you're not planting. Okay, so you're not right. It, so before, right. So you're you're inferring another step. Okay. But let's look at just look at the passage. What's the purpose of it? Let others leave from it. Right. And who are those others? The poor, primarily. People. So normally I own my land and I own my, thus I own the produce. I can eat the produce. I can sell the produce. Okay. Um, and this, it, according to this passage, it basically says, I don't own uh, uh, temporarily, as it were, in the seventh year, I don't own my land. No one owns my land which means everyone owns my land, okay? So who can eat the fruit of my fruit trees? Anyone, right? So in context, who are those anyones who we need to think about? So that if we look at the context of what the laws that come before and after, the anyones appear to be those who are less advantaged. Why are they less advantaged? Presumably they are not the people who own land, They're the evyonim, the poor people, as well as the animals. It's very interesting in this passage and in the the Shabbat one just below it that we read, there's concern for the animals, okay? Um, We'll have talks later in the year, Green Team talks on concern for animals. Um, So basically, I can say, look at me, I'm a landowner. Look at my, my orchard and how many orange trees I have. On the seventh year... I don't own any of it, right? So the result is that the poor are taken care of. The poor are not less advantaged on that year. And in that year, by the way, I also have no pride or control of ownership. Can someone take your land if you don't own it? Tell me what take means. I don't know. Put a house on it. (laughs) I Um, don't know. Yeah I, yeah, I think not because, oh, well, let's put it this way. The interpretation, um, it's a great question. The interpretation of land has always traditionally been not about space, but about the yield of the land. Okay. Right? So I don't think they're talking about, you know, I got thousands of acres in Texas and it's empty. It's more like, you know, land for growing stuff. Um, but that's a good question. It's a good halachic question. I'm sure the halacha addresses that, the distinction between land and produce. But they're just assuming land means produce. Land means stuff that grows. Okay. So I have a practical question here. Sure. Uh, this is great in the seventh year. It takes yep. care of the needy. But what did they do in the other six years? Were they supposed to pick enough oranges in the seventh year to and they don't keep for forever. So can they, can anyone answer Carl's question? If you're familiar with other places in the Chuma, are there or I'll I'll answer your question with a question. Can we think of other places in the Chumash where there are various things uh, that poor people, meaning non landowners, do to survive? You leave survive the corners of your fields. Right. Leave the corners of your fields. Leave the gleanings. Think of the story of Ruth. What did the poor people do at harvest time? They went into the fields. They got the droppings, the gleanings, the cornings. So, Carl, it's an excellent question. Um, and uh, there was a system of, we, we could call it taxation to care for the poor in biblical times. There are different aspects to it. This particular aspect of it is on the seventh year, the poor are not any poorer than you are because no one owns the land. 
as opposed to, let's say, the other times when there's the gleanings and the pickings of the corners and the corners, which I'm required by Torah law to leave for them. But I still own it's still my field. It's my field. And I'm required by the Torah to leave the corners of my field. But it's still my field. Okay, I think there's some other thing you're supposed to do every three years, if I recall. Correct. We talked about that a little bit in the beginning of class today. The 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 second tithe um, every third year, you're supposed to leave it out for the poor, right? So there, yes, the answer is yes. There's a system of let's call it in quotes taxation uh, at other times, uh, not just the sabbatical year to take care of the poor. Okay, and this is a more there's a more radical one. This is like. No, there are no poor on the sabbatical year. You're poor on the sabbatical year. Everyone is equal on the sabbatical year because no one owns land. Everyone can make use of that produce equally. I can't say to people, hey, get out of my garden. Stop picking. That's my garden. I'm not allowed to say that on the sabbatical year, according to this passage. Okay. Diane has Diane. It seems to me the real problem is in the eighth year, because the seventh year, okay, you, you, you're eating the produce of the sixth year, if you're in the seventh year. But in the eighth year, it takes a while for the fields and the trees to generate crops. And what were people supposed to eat? I have not planted Diane to ask this question. Okay. Here we go. Rabbi Schatz, could you, uh, Diane, that's an excellent question. Let's see how the Torah answers. So let's go on to the second passage. Second I'm going ma- um, to hand it off to Rabbi Klickfeld. Yes, but he has to connect to audio first so that he can share the screen. Okay, good. So just Hi, Rabbi, Klick- one- Hi, Rabbi Klickfeld. Okay. Hi, everyone. Do you, Hi. Mind share- Do you mind sharing your screen with the text I sent you, Rabbi Klickfeld, so that I can stop sharing? Uh, yes, as soon as I find the text that you sent me. <laughs> All right. Well, um, pause for a moment. Pause for a moment. The wait, human, the human element, the human element in technology. I emailed uh, it to you just a few minutes ago. Okay. Uh, oh, you mean the one that says obvious text for today? That one? Yeah, that's the one. Okay. Uh, hold on. Yes, I, I knew will. that our senior rabbi was the Sherlock. Yeah. <laughs> was what? A Sherlock. You're a good Sherlock. A Sherlock. Sherlock Holmes, the one that says obvious text for today. Yes. Okay. Great. Scroll down, please. Thank you. Bye, Rabbi Shah. Good handoff. All right. Scroll down more. We're on the next one. Get more. Great. Okay. Pause. Right. So wait. wait, wait. Okay. So second passage. And again, the bold is the um, is the uh, stuff about Shemitah. And then the not bold is the context. Could you just back it up like two lines? Rabbi, there we go. Okay. Okay, this is near the end of Leviticus, Vayikra. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come to the land which I am giving to you, the land should have a Shabbat. So this is now a word that is introduced in this passage that we did not see in the passage in Exodus. There it was just called the seventh year. And the verb is you release it and abandon the land. And here we have a name. All right. Uh, Well, I don't know if it's a name, but it says the land should have a Shabbat. Six years you should uh, sow your field. And six years you shall uh, do whatever it is to grapevines. You know, I'm, I'm from Queens, so I don't really know what it is. Trim. Okay. Whatever the verb is for growing grapevines. And gather in its produce. But on the seventh year, Shabbat, Shabbaton, Yiela Aretz. The land should have a Shabbat, Shabbaton, a Sabbath of Sabbaths, total Sabbath, something like that. That's what Shabbat Shabbaton means. Total Sabbath. Shabbat Lahashem. This is a Shabbat for God or Shabbat um, to God. Okay, we'll talk about that. Your field, you should not sow. Your vineyard, you shall not trim. Um, the aftergrowth of your harvest, you shouldn't cut, uh, meaning no cutting. Shnot, again, reemphasize, shnot shabbaton yel aretz. There shall be a year of Sabbath for the land. Okay, v'hayta shabbat aretz lachem le'ochla. But the Sabbath of the land can be for you to eat. So again, it's not that you starve. You have food to eat. 
you can pick it, but you can't work it. So you can pick enough to eat. Okay. I'm hungry today. I can go out and pick food. I can go out and, 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 uh, cut grain and mill the grain and bake bread. Okay. But I can't cut my entire wheat, wheat harvest all at once. All right. So I'm allowed to take food. So the, the shop, the Shabbat of the land is for you for food. Lecha. Ula avdecha vilamatecha to your man and made slave, vilischircha and your hired hand, uletoshavcha hagarim imach and the one the the dwellers who dwell with you, which is probably another word for the ger. Okay. Uh, so notice in the first passage in Exodus, we said the poor. As the, as the labeling of the category, the poor and the animals, as the labeling of the category of, of entities that are non-landholders. Here we say uh, um, slaves and hired servants and gerim. Viliv hemtecha, and your animals. Vilachaya, the difference between behema and chaya. Behema means barnyard animals and chaya means wild, wild animals. It's the, the, squir- the squirrel who who takes away my figs, right? So both my barnyard animals, uh, cattle, right? And wild animals, asher okay? So here we have still this. So one idea which is similar is I may not work the land on the seventh year, okay? I can eat of it, but anyone else can eat of it. So, so far you'd say, well, it's kind of the same as the first version in Shemot in Exodus, but what's the different element in this passage? Um, who or what is this? What's the ideology behind this? Now, Barbara, now it's your turn. I said before, because I know about this part, you're putting the land at rest. You're not. So, so the land rests, right? So what this says much more clearly and at great length, by the way, I didn't count how many times it says Shabbat, but I think, you know, three to four times, which means like, oh, this is really emphasized here. You know, the Torah doesn't waste words. We all know that, right? Right? The land gets Shabbat, okay? And who is that linked to, that Shabbat? Who's it linked to? To God. God, okay? So I'd like to point out again, in the first passage in Exodus, I think there was nothing about God in the law of Shemitah. So now this passage is saying the land gets a Shabbat, and this has something to do with God, okay? So we have two new elements, right? Even though you could say, practically speaking, there's no difference in terms of practice between what we read in Exodus and what we're reading in this passage. It boils down to the same thing. You could say, well, it doesn't mention, doesn't mention olive trees in this one, but you can just say, well, it's probably included, right? Because it's all produce. So practically speaking, it's the same, but in terms of the nuance of the ideology behind it, it's different, right? So the first one says, basically, in the context of don't take advantage of poor people and on Shabbat, let the, you know, the poor people not, uh, don't, uh, not work, let them rest. And we had, okay, in the seventh year, also the poor, you don't own your land. No one owns land. Everyone has land. Everyone can eat, uh, poor people can eat from the land equally. Here we have, practically speaking, it's the same thing. It's a different nuance. It's the land gets Shabbat, and it has something to do with God. I can't even really translate that into coherent English because it's not even really coherent Hebrew. Shabbaton Shabbat um, I can't even really translate that, right? A, a total... Sabbath, the land should have a Sabbath for God. You sort of say, like, well, like, what does that mean? Okay, so let's look in context. Rabbi Clickfield, if you scroll, scroll down some. So here's what follows. Count seven years, seven times. And on the 50th year, proclaim Jubilee. And what's going to happen on the Jubilee year? Every person goes back to their land holding, which means in the 50-year or Jubilee year cycle, if I got poor and I needed to sell a piece of my land, and remember, this land is land that I inherited from my ancestors. It is 
clan tribal land. I can sell you the land. You give me money. You get the land. But at the end of the 50th year, the land reverts to me. Now, I might be dead, okay, but it reverts to my family and clan, right? So all land sales are revoked every 50 years, okay? And on the 50th year, you also should not plow or sow or do any of those agricultural festivals, uh, agricultural labors, which means year 49 is a sabbatical year. We're going to get to who asked the question about Diane, right? We're going to get to it, right? So it means year 49, I can't work the land because it's a sabbatical year, seven times seven. And then year 50, I can't work the land. So, wow, I'm really going to worry about starving here. Okay, Rabbi Clickfell, will you scroll down, please? Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. Okay, and here's the next passage about this. So this just means, oh, by the way, so when you are selling land to someone, what you're actually selling them is crop years, which means, just practically speaking, if I am selling my land in year 10 of a 50-year cycle, it's going to fetch a higher price than if I sell my land in year 40 of a 50-year cycle, right? When I sell it in year 40, that just means someone has purchased from me nine or 10 crop years. In year 50, it's going to, they're not going to own the land at all. It's going to go back to me, okay? Um, But if I sell to them in year 40, they are, I am selling them 40 crop years. So that's going to be a higher price, okay? Do not wrong one another, but fear your God, for I am the, the Lord, I'm your God. That it's an interesting question is why is that there? We might or might answer that. You shall observe my laws and rules faithfully. And if you do this, the land will give its bounty. Let's scroll down, Rabbi Clickfeld. And should Diane, the Torah says, could have said, and should Diane ask, what are we to eat in the seventh year if we mean if we may neither sow nor gather in our crops? Hashem is saying, do not worry, Diane. I will ordain my blessing for you in the sixth year, which means it's going to be a bumper crop so that it will yield a crop sufficient for three years. Now, why does it have to be sufficient for three years? It's what I eat in the sixth year, which is year 48. It's what I eat in the seventh year. Or you could say, I in, maybe you could say you ingather, you ingather at the end of the year, which will be for the following year. So at the end of year 48, I gather in enough food that it's going to cover year 49. It's going to be a bumper crop, okay? It also has to cover year 50, okay? Because year 50 is jubilee, also no planting. It also has to cover year 51 or year one. Why? Because in year 50, I wasn't allowed to plant. Therefore, I don't have food to eat in year one. Hashem is saying, if you keep the system, I will reward you. Do not worry. Bumper crop in year 48, it'll cover three years worth of food. You can eat year 49, year 50, and year one of the new cycle. Okay. Onwards. Scroll down a little more. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I just want to read a little more, please. Okay. Hold on to that. But the land must not be sold beyond reclaim, meaning that 50-year cycle, I'm not allowed to sell my land forever, right? I may want to sell my land forever. The buyer may want to buy it forever, but I am not allowed to sell it forever. And the buyer is not allowed to buy it forever, meaning neither the seller nor the buyer has full autonomy to do what they want with their own, with their land ownership. Why? Ki li haaretz. God is saying, because the land is mine, which means you cannot buy and sell whatever you want because you are not the actual owner. I am the owner, says God. And that's why you can't dispose of it as you wish, because you don't own the land, really. I own the land, okay? This is so strong. You know that thing we talked about, the ger, the resident alien, he comes from another land, he doesn't really own any land locally. God is saying, all of you are gerim on my property. I am the property owner. 
Therefore, I set the rules. My rules are every 50th year, there's a reset and the land goes back to the original clan to whom it was originally given. By the way, Gula redemption, we're not going to read the law of redemption, Gula, but what that means is, let's say I got poor and I sold my clan land in year 40, okay? In year 35, let's say my cousin has a windfall, okay? She then might buy the land back from the person I sold it to who's outside of the clan. That is called, it's a technical term, it's called gula, which means redemption. Redemption means you buy back the clan land and bring it back into the clan. And of course, you're probably, again, familiar with this idea, something rattling around in the back of your brain about the book of Ruth, right? Boaz says, I will do gula for the land and for the widow. It's not exactly the Torah's version of the law. It's somewhat different. But the idea is the clan lands have fallen because of impoverishment, have fallen temporarily into the hands of some other ownership, okay? And so someone from the, it's, it's seen as honorable, proper, that someone, if someone from the clan, the lineage is able to buy it back, they should buy it back. So they might may buy it back within the 50 years. That's what it means, it means let people redeem the land. But if no one has redeemed the land, it all reverts at year 50, okay? What's the authority behind that? God is saying, you think you are owners, you are not actually owners, you are resident aliens, you are sharecroppers on my land, I'm the owner. I give you of its bounty, and so I have some degree of control over it. Okay, so pause. So let's consider for a couple of minutes the second version of the Shemitah law um, in, set in context of this passage. We said, practically speaking, it means the same thing, which is you can't farm your land on year seven. You can eat of it. Anyone can eat of it. The poor can eat of it. The animals can eat of it, et cetera, et cetera. So practically speaking, there's no different outcome. But how is the ideology behind Shemitah expressed differently in this passage? Anyone? I can't see everyone when we're doing screen sharing. So Barbara, as you waved a hand. I was concerned with the idea that I understand that if you're dealing with grain, with wheat, with barley, that you can have a super crop and have it last for three years. But what about if you have grapes or what about if you have oranges or apples? You can't make a lot of uh, three years worth of that. It's going to last. Raisins, prunes, and dried figs. I think that's the answer. Yeah. I think that's the answer to every problem in life, just for the record. Raisins, prunes, and dried figs. Yes. Right. Uh, Right. I I mean, I guess the answer is, by the way, you can pick, uh, again, I want to point out, you can pick oranges. Oranges are going to grow on trees. You may pick the oranges and eat them. You're not allowed to, I mean, this is, this is then looked at halakhically later on by the rabbis in specifics, but you can't do labors on the tree. So you can't uh, uh, plant the tree, fertilize the tree, et cetera, et cetera. You cannot gather in all of the oranges and say, I've collected all the oranges, but you can eat the oranges. Okay, so you can eat fruit grows and you can eat the fruit, right? So it's not necessarily that you have to gather, yes, about the grain, it says you gather in and store it, but fruit keeps growing, okay? So what's the ideology here? Why do we have to keep Shemitah according to the passage in Vayikra that we just read? Diane has raised her hand. Diane. Well, I'll answer your question first, which is it's because God, it's for God. But why? Why does God care? Um, does God does God eat does God eat the oranges? No, no. clearly clearly no. not. I don't know. This is some kind of an equality thing, right? It it um, the business about not being able to own your land from or own a piece of land that's not yours for um, more for more than fifty years um, has a tendency to equalize people and their wealth. Uh, uh, and I'll say that much more sh- sharply. 
it's quite anti-capitalist, right? You can't, right. you can't accumulate, you can I mean, what happens over time, the reality in, in human life is there are, you know, certain people who accumulate more and more, perhaps because of their hard work, perhaps because of their natural God-given talents that they didn't earn, but that are inborn, perhaps because of the family they were born into, okay? And we, we have a system where we say, yeah, people can acquire and, you know, the poor people, if they want to acquire, they have to work hard too. And then when I acquire, I can hand that on to my heirs. And then eventually we'll have like, you know, the Rockefellers or whatever. Okay. And this seems to explicitly, I don't want to say explicit, I'm going to take it back. It de facto has an outcome that there will be no Rockefellers in this system. Because it says, Every 50 years, we re-egalitarianize the system of ownership of the means of production, if I may speak in Marxist terms. I think they say that, the means of production. You live in a farming society, that's the means of production. Every 50 years, we hit the reset button. The, the, the reality then is, is families do not become too rich or too poor. So it does have an egalitarian effect. And God says, and God seems to be saying, and I'm the landowner. It's it's my football, so it's my rules. Okay, right, I have a lot of hands. Good. Your question, which no, is, no, no, hold on. I'm going to call. I'm going to call. I'm sorry. Marlies, wait, Marlies can, first, then Joanna. Wait, can, I, Mar- can I finish? I Diane. Wanted to say two more things. One is yeah. that, that this has implications in the modern state of Israel which the state is the primary landowner, not individuals. And the I, said land- we're not gonna, I said we're not going to talk about modernity at all, but go okay. on. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, my question is, do we have any evidence that this was actually practiced? Excellent question. I hope later in the year to get a real-life Bible scholar to give us a talk, and then I want to ask that question too. And I want to also ask these three different views, do they reflect three different periods in time? Was it ever really practiced? When do these texts come from? So that's a great question. And um, we're going to put it on hold for another talk. For the moment today, we're just talking about what is the Torah's ideology? Marlise. Okay, um, I was going to answer that, or what I thought, and Gary has a question. Uh, So it seems to me it's just what you were just saying before, which is that this everything belongs to God and for us to be reminded of that, even right. though, even though and, the seven and, years or 49 right. years not happening. Yes. And, that and way. what's the everything? Yes. But what's the everything in particular, Marlise? Everything. What's the thing? The land and the produce. The land, right? The whole basis of our sustenance, which we think we own. You don't own it. It's God's. The earth is God's. Yes. Go on. Um, oh, that was it. I think. Yeah. Seems- by the way, the earth is God's, and therefore God ordains. Besides the forty-nine years, back to the seventh year, God ordains that the earth can rest once every seven years. So there is that egalitarian thing and the poor thing, but it also I want to come back to the earth gets rest. God, who owns the earth, says the earth should have rest. Uh-huh. Okay. Very. Yeah, I had a quick question. It's almost like indentured servitude. For, yeah, for, go ahead. I mean, you, you don't own the land. You work the land. You get the process of that land. But once, once it's over, it goes yeah. back to the owner. Correct. Or like sharecropping. Right, okay. sharecropping. Right, we're sharecropping on God's land. Just a footnote. Where else do we know in the Torah from sharecropping? I'll give you just three seconds to answer if someone come up, can come up with the answer. In the Chumash, who mentioned sharecropping? Joseph, Joseph, when the Egyptians run out of money during the famine, they turn all their land over to Pharaoh. And it says, therefore, forever after the system in Egypt is 20 percent of all the produce is given to Pharaoh every year by the people, which means in Egypt, Pharaoh owns all the land and the people are sharecroppers in distinction in ancient Israel. Hashem owns the land, and everyone is a sharecropper. Different nuance. Okay. Um, when you were, yeah, when you were saying there's no Rockefellers, but if the land is going back to the same family after 50 years, is that not, um, you know, boosting up their, you know, their land 
the system, um, again, was it really ever kept? That other system is that when the people settle in the land, all of the land is apportioned to tribes and clans and families based on their size, right? So, so embedded in this is an idea, an idea that everyone got a fair homestead, right? Uh-huh. And it's reverting to that system. And you might say, well, you know, but what if one family had 10 kids and one family had four kids, then it would end up not being fair. And I don't quite know the answer to that. Okay, uh-huh. Joanna, Joanna. So um, to the point of um, the second passage, really emphasizing the anti-capitalist, the one other change I noticed is um, in the first passage we looked at in Exodus, um, there was no mention. It was only only about the needy. But this passage brings in people who work for you and the animals who work for you, which I think contributes to your point of the anti-capitalist theme. Um, The other thing that I was noticing with the emphasis of Shabbat here is obviously there are parallels to to Shabbat and Shemitah. And it just popped into my mind that um, the first passage we looked at maps into Shabbat as explained in the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy, where there it says it explicitly states why you have Shabbat in order that um, all those people around you, your, 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 not only your family members, but your animals and people working for you may rest. Very echoing the, the language of the first passage. And this second passage to me maps to the Ten Commandments in Exodus, where first God is brought into it. And what did God do? God created for six days and rested on the seventh. And then there's a mapping of that, that um, so should all the people do. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, and I want to mention, but I want to point out, by the way, what's interesting is in this passage in Vayikra, there's no law of actual seventh day Shabbat in this section at all. This entire section is all about land. Okay, so you might say, well, seventh year is like the sevens and it's like the seventh year is like the seventh day. But there, it's interesting is no mention of that at all. The focus is really on land and what to do with land. That's the context in which it's embedded. Rabbi Kligfeld, are you able to linger a few minutes past 1 p.m. or no? Is he frozen? I don't know. Is he there? I was just looking for my unmute button. Yes, I am. Okay, good. Um, There are other hands up, but I want to go on to the third passage. I'm sorry. Um, I want to make sure we get to this. So if you could scroll down. So passage one was about, it's about, uh, uh, Shemitah is about poor people. Passage two, Shemitah is about poor people. It's really about the land and God's ownership of the land. Now we have a third third passage. Now I want you to scroll down, please, Rabbi Clickfeld, to the bolded, because I want to look at Shemitah first. Keep going, keep going, keep going. There it is. Here we go. At the end of every seven years, you shall make a Shemitah. By the way, we call the year the Shemitah year. I just want to point out that although passage number one used Lishmot as a verb to release, and passage number two did not mention it at all, this is the only one of the three passages where it's actually called Shemitah. In the first passage, it's called Shvi'it. In the second passage, it's also called the Shvi'it. And here it's called Shemitah. Every seven years, you shall make a release. That's really what that means. Again, we talked about that word. It's the, it's the opposite of grasp something you hand. So Shemitah doesn't mean, Shemitah comes to mean remission of debts, but Shemitah just means release. So I want to translate it as every seven years, you must make release. This is what the release is. Vizedavar HaShemitah. Every creditor um, shall not done his neighbor for his claim, for it is a Shemitah for God. It has been established as a Shemitah before God, okay? You may take, um, uh, 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 you may done a non-Jew. By the way, this is the whole basis of, you know, there's also stuff that you can't take, lend on interest to Jews, but you can to non-Jews. It's sort of the whole basis of Jews becoming money lenders in the Middle Ages, um, because they were able to lend on interest to non-Jews, and Christians observe it too. So Christians couldn't lend on interest to other Christians, so they needed the Jews so that they would have someone who would lend them money, right? The irony of Jews could lend to Christians, and Christians could lend to Jews on interest, but not vice versa. But this is not about interest, okay? But I'm just mentioning it because it's a similar idea. 
All right, so um, you must release debts. There shall be no needy among you, since the Lord your God will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a hereditary portion. If only you heed the Lord your God and take care of this instructions, God will bless you, but then go down. And it says, after saying, scroll down, after saying, there will not be any needy among you. Scroll down, right? But then it says, well, if, but if there is a needy person among you, okay, do not harden your heart and not give to them. Why might I harden my heart? Because it's year six. Some guy is coming to me in October of year six, asking to borrow money or grain to sow his field. And he says, don't worry. I promise I'll be able to pay you back by summer of year six. And I'm thinking to myself, right. Either I'll be thinking uh, cynically, he won't be able to, or I'll be thinking cynically, oh, he doesn't really mean that, right? And I know that the seventh year is going to come up. And what's going to happen the seventh year? The debt will be released and I will no longer be able to collect my debt. That is referred to as hardening your heart, okay? So do not have that base thought. He will cry out to God, give readily to him, have no regrets to do that. For in return, the Lord God will bless Scroll down a bit, please. Rabbi Clickfeld will bless. I guess it probably says you. Okay. Yeah. Bless you in all your efforts and undertakings, for there will never cease to be needy ones in the land. So don't ask me about the contradiction where God says there won't be needy, and now there will be needy. All the commentators talk about that. We're not going to focus on that. There will always be poor people. That is why I command you, open your hand to the poor and needy kinsmen in your land. We still do this practice, by the way, right? The Jewish Free Loan Society, all right, which Jews have always set up in all of their habitations, including in the diaspora. So the law of Shemitah, by the way, this is the whole law of Shemitah in Deuteronomy. We just read it, right, a week or two ago. In other words, the law of Shemitah in Deuteronomy has nothing to do with land, land ownership, lying the land, lie fallow, everyone can eat the crops, nothing, Okay, that in Deuteronomy, Shemitah is remission of debts. All debts are released by creditors on the seventh year. Um, I just want to tell you quickly, um, if you scroll back up to the top of Deuteronomy, Rabbi Clickfeld, if we just look at the context, we're just going to skim through it. No, back up, back up, back up, back up, back up, back up, keep going up, 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 up. Okay, okay. All right, we had the law of the second tithe, and it said the second tithe every third year, you have to give it to the poor people, okay? And it says the Levite in your cities, since there are no more temples in your individual cities, make sure they're taken care of. Can you scroll down? Um, So we had a version of taking care of the poor and landless. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. Keep going, keep going, go all the way through, all the way through. And now let's look at what's after Shemitah. After the Shemitah law is the law of the Hebrew slave. Six years, you have a slave, then you have to release the slave. Not only do you have to release him, you have to give him our Jewish version of 40 acres and a mule. I say that intentionally, right? You actually have to give him stuff to start his new life, okay? And if he wants to stay with you forever, he can, but you have to drill his ear with an awl, A-W-L, Right. So we have before the Shemitah law in Deuteronomy, we have take care of the Levite who is landless. Also, the tithe every third year, you got to leave the tithe out. You basically put it out for the poor and the needy in your community. Then after the Shemitah law, we have the law of the Hebrew servant who has to be released and given a start in life. So basically, this version of Shemitah in Deuteronomy is more clearly about economics than about land, okay? It's about remission of debts. What happens if there is no remission of debts? People rack their credit card debt debt up higher and higher and higher until they end up, we all know this in our society, having to file for personal bankruptcy, okay? So we end up in a society where there are large, you know, a pyramid of large creditors, and lots and lots and lots of little debtors who become bigger and bigger debtors. And the system in Deuteronomy makes that impossible to happen. It says all debts are released on the seventh year. Now, it, of course, you might, you might say, gee, this is based on a lot of goodwill. And the answer is yes, it seems to be based on the goodwill of that people who borrow 
will want to pay back. Remember, who did I borrow from? Think of agricultural society. Okay, I was a farmer. I planted the wrong thing. I had a bad crop year. My neighbor planted the right thing. She had a good crop year. And I said to my neighbor, you know, my family's going to starve. We didn't earn any money this year. Will you lend me some crops or seed, you know, whatever the value is of the crops or the seed that you lend me, I promise I will pay you back when I have a better year. So this is all seems to be predicated on a small-ish agricultural society where creditors and debtors know each other. It's not a bank. It's not a credit card. Okay. And I, as the debtor, will feel like I ought to pay my creditor back. And if I can't, then it uh, by the seventh year, then it does not send me and my offspring, my family, into further long-term impoverishment. The slate is wiped clean, okay? So it's a different kind of system of reset. All of these versions of Shemitah have a sort of societal reset, okay? Whether it's the poor people who are not landowners, whether it's the second version in Vayikra, which is the poor people are not landowners, but also the land gets reset. Of course, you can say all sorts of, you know, scientific or quasi-scientific theories about, you know, this was a system so that the land would not be overworked and would have a chance to regenerate its natural organic things, right? Uh, I think the Torah didn't talk science, but maybe that's partly also behind the land deserves a Shabbat, right? In the second version that we read. And this is really overtly not about land, but it's straight up about economics and debts, right? People need to borrow and lend. And if there's no end to it, uh, we're going to end within five minutes. Um, If there's no end to it, then um, you end up with creditor credit. you, You end up essentially with our culture, right? Creditors and debtors, people who amass more, people who become more and more um, indebted. By the way, Rabbi Clickfeld, I think I am a co-host now. Is that correct? Does that mean? Does that mean? Does that mean we can continue without you? You can definitely continue. I just you just I won't be able to share my screen with the text. That's okay. That's okay because okay, we have the text. Okay. Comments, thoughts about, uh, why don't you unshare the screen, please, so that we can all see each other, or at least I can see everyone. Great. Um, and let's, uh, we've dropped off. We don't have that many people, but let's take a few minutes and just sort of reflect, fill up, stop, let's start with reflection on the third one. Barbara, then Diane. Well, <clears throat> this, I understand what this says, but how would they have accounted, or maybe they did, didn't have that kind of thing, the way we have, we take out a 30-year mortgage. Or a ten years thing on an automobile, that would would that have that that couldn't wipe those since you've signed papers. Could that have if you did it with a Jew? Could that have wiped out those? I don't know the answer. So the interesting question is, what if I? I mean, this is about loans, right? So it is possible that if I had a really good crop here and I sold my crops and I had more money, I could actually take that money and buy my neighbor's cow. So what's not covered here is I could buy my neighbor's cow and keep it forever, and my neighbor can never get their cow back. So yeah, there are ways in which there is accumulation of wealth, um, but it's, it's interesting. It's not money in passage number three, and it's not land in passage number two because of the jubilee. Right. I guess it could be cows. Yeah. Uh, There was another, there was another hand. I don't know. I can make another comment as far as the second passage. And that is that the Shabbat of Shabbats, the the Jubilee, or even every seventh year. Yeah. Allows for God's land to continue to provide in future years. Yeah. So I think God was asking for the Shabbat so that he could make, land or she the land produce for future years whereas as we now know if you continue to use the land forever and ever with the same crop your land's going to go fallow on its own right so what you're saying is behind this the theology of god owns the land is there some uh i'm going to call it a practical 
uh, positive outcome for this that you would see. Absolutely. Okay. Larry, and then we're going to wrap up. Very brief comment. I don't think that this is so much anti-capitalist as it is anti-feudalist. The system was feudalism. I take yeah, correct. I, I said that facetiously, by which I mean there was no capitalism, so it couldn't be anti-capitalist. But no, but people have actually used this um, to try to justify different positions. But it certainly is arguing for against an unfettered um, permanent ownership of resources. So that's the only point uh, I'll make. Yeah, permanent ownership and accumulation of resources. Again, because uh, with, with, so with if. Or let's just say if economics takes their course unfettered, um, inevitably in general, there's certain people who accumulate more and more. We can say they're lucky or they're talented or they're harder working or they're born into the right family, right? Certain people who accumulate more and more, certain people will have less and less. So we have a variety of ways, different ways in which the Torah sets up a system and this is why it fits into Elul something. I can't remember the Elul slogan about re something or other. Anyone remember what our Elul slogan is? The rubric is, I should know. It's, it's, but, but I think of it as, it, you know, this is how a society, this is the Torah's vision of how a society renews itself and keeps itself from becoming stultified or stuck in patterns of accumulation of wealth on the one hand and deterioration of certain family individuals families and classes of people on the other hand the haves have more the have-nots have less all right and the torah has a system of saying periodically every seven years we've got to have some type of reset to impede this process from happening so that uh, all the time, you know, on our electronics, restore factory settings. This is like restore factory settings, restoring the default settings. The land defaults back. The debt is released. People can't accumulate too much, which means people can't deteriorate too much either. So we have the Torah system, three different, I'm going to summarize this thing, three different angles. I don't think they're in contradiction, I think they complement each other, but they talk about different aspects of how a society tries to um, renew itself so that it does not become uh, economically broken. And we might say that if it's economically broken, it then becomes socially and then maybe spiritually broken also. And this is a part of the Torah's attempt to not have that happen, to make sure that a society remains fresh and renewed without the haves having too much and the have-nots having too little. So thanks for joining me today. Sorry we ran over. I think I'm going to end uh, here. And everyone have a meaningful Elul. Thank you. Okay. It was great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Asher okay. Thank, Thank you. Thanks for coming. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.